course, any of our listeners uh, can tell you, we here at Chop Shop Economics are loud and proud supporters of what we refer to as Zapatista Luchadore political thought. Up with the fucking luchador. <sighs> Whether they're running for office or generally being kind of awesome, we've got nothing but support and admiration, especially with this latest report of uh, luchador wrestlers in Mexico City participating in community-led mask enforcement measures. This is, like, my favorite kind of direct action. Like, we need to bring this fucking shit to the fucking United States. Oh. (laughs) I mean, you pretty much would need luchadors to do it, is the thing. It, it doesn't work if you send like. Okay, here, it doesn't work here, if you like send brunch liberals okay. to do it. You gotta send luchadors. Here's the thing: <laughs> I am in full support of the luchador Marxist program. <laughs> I absolutely, you know, I'm gonna unhesitatingly stand the development of this beautiful movement into, you know, an anarcho. Lichidore Marxist front. Like when the revolution comes to Mexico, it will be Luchadores who are at the front ranks in the Luchadore Red Guard. So, so, so what, Doc, what you're uh, saying here is that you're a Luchador vanguardist? You know, if you're going to have a vanguard, you may as well have them looking totally badass. <laughs> Oh, this is such 2021 vibes. I fucking love this shit. <laughs> Welcome to Chop Shop Economics. We read this shit so you don't have to. Oh boy. So, uh, uh. Miss Silver, do you want to introduce all the co hosts? Uh, sure. Um, I'm Miss Silver, and with me today is the Doc. And it's me, HQ! <laughs> so. As we bring. <laughs> so, yeah, and a break from the. Luchadore Liberation Front, mm-hmm. whose efforts we long and unhesitatingly stand. We've got some rather, you know, somewhat surprising, though for longtime listeners, not too shocking news coming from the Federal Reserve. Oh. Fed Chair Jerome Powell gave his opening uh, statement prior to the FOMC uh, Fed conference where uh, U.S. Federal Reserve monetary policy would be set, interest rates would be discussed, and, you know, a lot of really significant decisions are made regarding economic policy. And, you know, once you get past 
to really, really pay no attention to the burning building behind those pits like this. <clears throat> the economic fallout has been real and widespread. But with the benefit of perspective, we can say that some of the very worst economic outcomes have been avoided by swift and forceful action from Congress, from across government, and in cities and towns across the country. And but, uh, Doc, what if I want to roast marshmallows at the burning building? But, you know, then your name's Jerome Powell. Um, I didn't realize, you know, Powell had some HQ energy. Maybe I should get him in the gang. <laughs> But that's like, you know, aside from that, which, you know, shouldn't be that surprising, the Fed is going to do that shit. They don't want to scare the free market fairy <laughs> any more than they already have. Is this announcement by Powell? We expect to maintain an accommodative stance of monetary policy until these employment and inflation outcomes are achieved. With regard to interest rates, we continue to expect it will be appropriate to maintain the current 0 to 1 quarter percent target range for the federal funds rate until labor market conditions have reached levels consistent with the committee's assessment of maximum employment and inflation has risen to 2 percent and is on track to moderately exceed 2 percent for some time. I would note that a transitory rise in inflation above 2 percent, as seems likely to occur this year, would not meet this standard. Which is a reversal of, you know, a good 30 years, 40 years of U.S. monetary policy. Mm. Like, a complete flip. Like, I'm going to get out of HQ mode for a second here. Like, so, like, okay, so for people asking, what does this flip mean? Like, neoliberalism has lost the support of the Federal Reserve. I can't emphasize enough how fucking major that is. Like, the Federal Reserve manages so much of the economic policies of the United States and has a dramatic influence on the rest of the world. And if like the United if like the United States' Federal Reserve is any reserve is any support for austerity, is any support for neoliberal capitalism like, that is a huge fucking shit that's going to have a huge impact on the rest of the world. And, like, that doesn't mean that, like, our economic system is suddenly going to get, you know, better and amazing. But what this does mean is that this moment that started, it started with, like, the Chicago school and, you know, Pinochet's coup of Chile and, like, Reagan and Thatcher, this moment has en is ending as we speak. And that is... Like, I know we've doomed talk for a while, but that's really fucking good news for us. Mm. And, like, you know, just to put it out there, we did, I think, back in episode three, maybe, I want to say, <coughs> put out that the COVID crisis was going to break neoliberalism, and <laughs> one year later, St. Patrick's Day 2021... Oh, look, <laughs> the Federal Reserve is abandoning what was one of the central pillars of neoliberal economic policy, which is that the role of central banks is to fight so, inflation okay. and to protect the value of money and assets. It is not to encourage maximum employment or any other stuff like that. Um, and this is 
I mean, this is significant, and the Fed is basically no longer going to be an obstacle to stuff that may be inflationary, but I really think what's happening here is the Fed is sort of post-facto justifying <coughs> shooting money into space. Mm. So what, um, so Doc, what you're basically saying, considering that it uh, ended on St. Patrick's Day, you know, how St. Patrick's Day has connection to Ireland, and if you go back far enough, Ireland as a united political entity has its mythical connection to the Morrigan. So what you're telling me is the Morrigan destroyed neoliberalism. Maybe. But, like, you know, I think that's... Like, what's it... Like, how this is kind of feels almost like it's locking the barn door after the horse is bolted, almost, is... We been kind of wondering on here for a while now how the fuck the Fed was able to shoot $9 trillion into space and for it not to cause some kind of inflationary ripple across the economy. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of been speculating on different things that could mean for a while now. And I think what the Fed is kind of is communicating by doing this is they're going, yeah, inflation, inflation, that thing we did there where we parted money into space was not a problem. Even though the old rules that we swear are the rules that dictate how the economy really works say we should not have done that. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the Fed effectively saying to the IMF and everybody else, yeah, we know what we did was breaking the rules. We don't care. Yeah. So what you're saying is that there's been another major blow to the old Washington consensus? Oh, yeah. This is... The, like, the shift to anti-inflationary policy with Paul Volcker is seen as sort of like a pivotal moment in the establishment of neoliberalism as a global economic system. And <coughs> this is basically completely abandoning Volcker and all monetary policy since then. Now, we know the Fed doesn't have the money to repeat what they did last, like, March 2020. Like, the Fed said as much in their September uh, press conference. What this instead kind of more says is they're not going to get in the way Hmm. of whatever it is Biden and Congress tries to do. The way Greenspan kind of did dick around with Clinton's economic policy in the 90s by fiddling with interest rates and shit. Hmm. So, wait, wait, uh, this actually is kind of interesting because this implies that there's basically been a palace coup in the Federal Reserve. <laughs> like, it's a major yeah. fucking shift and, like, Knowing, like, how, like, built in the fucking neoliberal clique was in the Federal Reserve for a long time, that would not have been a smooth transition. Like, if, like, for a transition like this away from neo, like, liberalism in itself, like, that requires a fucking palace coup. That doesn't mean people dying, but, like, that must me- must have meant there have been major, major, like, internal changes in the Federal Reserve recently. 
Well, that, or they've looked at the last decade or so of quantitative easing when that shit really didn't actually work very well and are basically giving up on what didn't work. Like, I think it's that they finally, like, I mean, part of it is, like, I think it's them post facto justifying how their response was, and it really wasn't that great of a response, let's be real. I mean, it did keep things from totally melting down in finance, but and we'll get into the purchasing shit later. Um, the, but this is, you know, it's covering their ass, it's signaling that they're open to a new direction, and, you know, Jerome Powell was of that old school himself. So, like, ideologically, this is huge, but it's what's kind of perverse about it that really summarizes the moment we're in right now is that practically it may not matter that much. Yeah, no, no. It's like this, honestly speaking, like... Like, shit won't get worse on the monetary financial front. Yeah. essentially what this means for, you know, if you're counting your money from your yeah. Like, honestly speaking, like, yeah, this is a really great change. I am very happy for this. I fully support this. But this shift should have happened in Obama's first term. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I sort of feel like this is... The horse has already bolted is the thing. Like, this is... This is a little late. Yeah, like, this is... like That's what I... Basically, I agree completely with Miss Silver here. It's like, it's way too late for this. Like, yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, finally engaging the fucking brakes right as we're approaching the, like, the cliff edge is... I'm, I'm happy for that. That's going to, like, minimize the damage. And minimizing damage damage is going to save lives. But that's not... But this is too little too late to save our entire system, existentially speaking. And when I say our entire system, I'm talking about the Washington consensus. I'm talking about the particular American form of capitalism. Like, if you wanted to, like, save American capitalism, like... Obama would have had act- actually been like a prog dem during like both his terms, and Bernie would have had to have won. But those two things yeah. did not happen, so here we are. And I'm happy the Fed is changing, but it's frankly too late. Like, your mistakes are coming back to bite you. And I'm, when I say the you, I'm referring to the Federal Reserve. Like, you did this too late. Yeah, and it's like the fact that it's not I mean, part of it is like this is this is partly why I doubted Bernie would necessarily be able to like, you know save democracy or whatever Um, but at the same time it's like you know, Sanders would (coughs) have had like you know some room and definitely the mandate to you know basically flip the table to accompany like this shift in the federal reserve with like actual policy objectives and that's not really present here is the thing like yeah this 
Uh, the stimulus bill is great, don't get me wrong. I finally have my 1400 bucks. Finally. But at the same time, I can't help but think, like, that was what you were expected to do. It's, so yeah, it's, this is significant. I mean, we're not going to downplay that this is not, like, this is a big shift, but it's, practically speaking, the Fed's already exhausted all other options. Yeah, the whole... They can't really, like, like, they're not going to fuck around with negative interest, because that would just, like, make Wall Street cry, like nobody's business. So they're not going to do something that disruptive. They can't stop doing quantitative easing. Because if they do, Wall Street cries. Mm-hmm. So and you don't want to make you know, the Wall Street fairy cry. Do you, do you want to taste those like Wall Street fairy tears? And actually, I do want to taste those Wall Street fairy tears, but the Fed's not willing to do that quite yet. <laughs> exactly. So it's like this is basically the Fed making like very pointative please fucking save me faces at Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress. Oh god. The Fed's yeah. being a little bit naive here if they're thinking that the Democrats in Congress are gonna fucking save them. Yeah. And it's like it almost like, yeah, I don't want to downplay this, but, like, this isn't just the Federal Reserve's job. It's good that they're no longer an impediment to breaking the back of austerity, but, you know, Congress kind of has to meet them halfway, the administration has to meet them halfway, and I'm not convinced that the administration is doing anything right now. <laughs> um... It's just, it's so fucked. Anyway. Yeah. And that gets us to where shit's getting even more fucked. <sighs> Brazilian healthcare on the brink of collapse. What the fuck? What the fuck does that mean? Um, what the fuck does that mean? Oh. That is... I mean, that's an easy thing to answer intellectually. Emotionally, much more difficult. But intellectually, it means a lot of people in Brazil are about to die. Because if Brazil's healthcare system collapses and it's looking like it's going to, that means that this infrastructure, this layer infrastructure that has been sustaining people for a very long time will no longer be there. And that means falling down and hitting concrete at a very, very high speed, metaphorically speaking. And what that means, when you look at statistics, a huge amount of people are going to fucking die. This is a fucking genocide. Like, when we look at, like, what the fucking, like, biotech corporations, you know, being, like, fucking Disney-esque on protecting their intellectual property in regards to, you know, who has access to the vaccine and who doesn't, this is what it results in. This results in fucking genocide. Like, these, those fucking executives who are, you know, holding tight, and the lawyers, frankly, too, who are holding tightly onto the fucking intellectual property, 
Like, need to be fucking tried for crimes against humanity. This is how fucking bad it is. Like, emotionally, this is why I'm not handling it well. Because people are gonna fucking die. Mm. And it's, you know, also that, you know, Bolsonaro probably had the worst COVID policy in the hemisphere, which is really saying something. Um, that he managed to clear... The, the bar that is called Donald Trump and the Republican Party quite handily has contracted and shaken off thanks to having fucking platinum-plated healthcare COVID twice. And on top of that, the Brazilian healthcare system is already a bit of a mess. Because, you know, the various shit involving oligarchs and bullshit in Brazil. And underfunding of public health which you know <laughs> hey go neoliberalism um so what you're saying is that shareholders are so what you're saying is that like in brazil they're creating a lot of value for their shareholders oh yeah shareholders are making out fucking fat but <laughs> yeah the, like brazil currently has like I think like over a hundred thousand people have died at this point so far. Um, the death rate, the actual death rate, I think is like the third highest on the planet. Um, it's like higher than the United States, competitive with the United Kingdom. Who's um, the first? Uh, I'd have to look that up. Um, but that's like, you know, that's how bad shit's got with the entire approach to the situation in Brazil. Like, there's been no... Not even basic masking mandates or anything. And there's, like, been active protests, like, um, recently, uh, like, mass protests went to, like, the famous Copacabana Beach and just covered it in crosses and memorials to people who died of COVID. Mm. Like, it's pretty, like, he's... Like, Bolsonaro's basically going with all the cruelty and malice of the Tories with all the bullheaded stupidity of Donald Trump. Mm. Um, I actually just looked this up just to make a technical correction now in case people um, bring this up later. Um, Brazil's not even, like, in, like, the, like, top 13. Um, but you know who is in the top 13? We can talk about this, like, much later, but, like, Czechia is, like, is... Has 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 had the most most deaths per capita. Um, yeah. Um, but and like the United Kingdom is fourth on that. Is I believe yeah, it's fourth on that. Um, uh, Slovenia is third on that, and Belgium is second on that. Um, actually, um, that might actually bring us to um. I know we didn't include this in the outline, but this is actually relevant to what the European Union is doing, talking about the European, about intellectual property. Um, like, can, uh, can we explain what the European Union just threatened to do in regards to uh, intellectual property regarding Belgium? Um, not Belgium, the European Union uh, as a yeah. whole, like, regarding, like, COVID and oh, vaccines. Yeah, so, oh, yeah, so the, the EU's threatened to see, like, disregard intellectual property copyright 
and seize the patents and necessary material for producing vaccines if, you know, the holdups in private distribution continue. Yeah. Like, recently there was, um, basically, um, what happened was the AstraZeneca, um, vaccine is approved in the EU. It's not approved here. There are currently about 30 million doses awaiting that FDA approval. The EU tried to buy them um, on the very reasonable grounds that, like, hey, we can use them. Um, We've approved them here. Um, We've got cash we can make this happen um, and it'll get us that much closer to total vaccination. And Biden was like, no. We might send a few to Ireland, but no. We're not going to give you the 30 million. And so, I mean, they're kind of at their breaking point. There are not enough vaccine manufacturers to actually vaccinate seven plus billion people to a herd immunity level. And that's, that's extremely bad. So they're like, yeah, we may just need to say, no, we're going to suspend IP law on this. Um, This is a bigger priority than giving big content their little kickback. Um, We need this fucking vaccine. And, you know, if the EU does that, then any pretense of the Washington consensus being a thing. Yeah, because then it's like, you know, at that point you're just basically saying to, like, Africa, to South America, to... Um, the rest of Asia, like, you know, this shit doesn't actually matter. You don't you don't actually have to pay attention to these fucking laws. You can just say it's, well, it's in the national interest. Um, and, you know, get, get the data from, you know, a sympathetic country and go hog wild. And, and like that's, who's going to stop you? Yeah. And, like, that's, like, a, would be, like, another death blow to neoliberalism. Like, if you break, like, intellectual property laws on an international level, like, American corporations that have just, like, had this, like, Disney-like death grip on intellectual property law, and before the lawyers get fucking mad, there's specific data I can point to, um, so anyhow, um, like, uh, like, in regards to Disney stuff, um, but, like, but in general, like, there's a Disney, like, death grip that American corporations have on intellectual property, and the rest of the world is in the United, like, the European Union, even, has stopped giving a shit about Disney-esque American, American, like, intellectual oh, property. Well, not, yet. not quite yet, but they're getting close, and that is a huge fucking break. Like, it doesn't, if, like, if they do this, it doesn't matter how much of a tantrum American corporations do, the European Union is not going to fucking give a shit. Yeah. It's very, like, it's going to be great watching intellectual property be the Suez crisis of the American Empire. (laughs) 
America brought down by big content? <laughs> Good God. This sounds like... Well, you know, they pick a fight over intellectual property and says, hi, we're seizing this because hi, people are dying. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. The U.S. goes to, you know, the World Bank and all the usual suspects and says they made funny faces at me. And they say, stop making funny faces in America. And then the EU, quite reasonably at that point, says, um, we do not give a shit. Yeah. Vaccine arm. Fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically what it is. I mean, it's like, I mean, part of it is that it's like, I suspect it's a negotiation tactic, but... It's a pretty powerful one because you're threatening to basically say like, like the whole IP regime, it basically depends on Europe to survive. Like if, you know, if America respects it and Europe respects it, then like all of the global South has like no fucking excuse and they got to bend the knee to big content. If Europe is like, no, actually, this is kind of stupid. Then you're basically saying, you know, the West is fighting. We we can just do whatever we want. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I could see this ending with the, you know, companies in question saying, like, quietly going, okay, fine, we're going to give preferential treatment to the EU for a hot minute here, and hope they can, you know, buy their way out of it. Yeah. And that might work for a minute, but the fact that this, the threat has been made... It means yeah. they can make the threat again. Is. Like, if the... Yeah. Here's the That's thing, is, the like, there's no good option for the American establishment here. Either they say, either they bend the European Union... And if they bend, that means that that means that the European Union can make this threat any time that the United States establishment does something that they don't like. And if the United States establishment, oh, the African, oh yeah, exactly, exactly. Like the African Union could straight up go fuck you. We're gonna like do this, the same thing. Yeah, Unisor like could yeah, even exactly. say fuck you, you green Like this bastard. threat alone sets a precedent. Like, and it doesn't matter how, like, the Biden administration responds to this, like, no matter what they do, they say yes, like, this means that they must bend to the rest of the world. If they say no, that means the rest of the world's gonna stop giving a shit about the Washington consensus altogether. Like, either way, um, there's a specific term, um, in German chess that Miss Silver was talking about recently elsewhere. Um, Miss Silver, do you want to describe the term you- you've coined for Biden's presidency? Uh, Jugzhuang. Um, Literally compulsion to move. It's a German chess term, basically. Um, Basically, it's the situation you're in when it's your turn and every legal move that is possible in chess at your current position will make your board um, position worse. There might be some positions that reduce the suck, but you will be losing something 
by the fact that you have to move this turn. And it feels very much like this is the presidency we have. We have a Zhejiang presidency because there are no good moves. We, we, we are now in a situation where we basically have to take the L. And there's no good way out of that. I mean, and, you know, I don't... This whole Biden world crew, they don't strike me as that brilliant. I mean, this would be... This would be a hard trap for, like, you know, a Nixon or LBJ to escape. Or FDR. Um, Biden is not going to do it. Like, even if you were to give the presidency to one of us, we would not be able to get out of this trap. That's how bad it is. Yeah. This is a... Yeah. This is bad. Just This is more of the U.S. and its power crumbling in the spirit that we're seeing. It's... There's nothing Biden can really do at this point. Like, it doesn't matter that he's not the orange man. Mm -hmm. The empire fatally fucked up in 2020, and that was enough. That's all it took. Yeah. And speaking, by the way, of fuck-ups <laughs> and Europe, we got more stupid bullshit coming from Turbine. Wait, what, what's happening on Tesco land? Yeah, what is happening so, on the Fascist of Island? Ah, uh, yeah, so what happened was recently, um, there, uh, a young woman was, like, kidnapped and murdered in London, and three days ago, a police officer was brought in. Her name is Sarah Evers, um, and a police officer was arrested three days ago for being the suspect for kidnapping and murdering a young woman in London. And a couple of days ago, at some time of recording, I believe it was March 17th, um, uh, several hundred women went to do a vigil in support of Sarah Evers and calling for justice for Sarah Evers in Clapham Common in London. The police had previously issued um, some really ridiculous, like, stay-away orders um, that were, you know, three people showing up would have been enough to justify police crackdown. Um, several hundred... Uh, Londoners refused to comply. They went, they held the vigil, and the cops showed up and basically beat the shit out of them and arrested them all. Mm. Which, you know, this shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's been watching British police or policing generally. Like, just because American cops are... Oh, yeah, so that's... So they've just been pushing through uh, the Tories a new crime bill that includes provisions that effectively ban the right to peaceably assemble, um, even include, like, measures that say things like, oh, if you're here on any kind of visa, and a police officer says they saw you at a protest, your visa's revoked, and your ass is getting thrown out of the country. Um, 
that won't have chilling effects at all. Like, I mean, honestly, I mean, like, I think it'll have chilling effects on the reformist faction, but on the revolutionary faction, when function, when functionally doing the reformist action gets you the same crackdown as being the revolutionary faction, like, that basically means you're turning people who you could have recuperated into revolutionaries. And what I say next, like, if I set foot on UK soil, would probably get me imprisoned. Like, I have UK citizenship, but I will say this. Like, if you are in the United Kingdom, parliamentary politics is a fuck show. It is not going to get you power. This is a time where revolution in Britain is essential. This means this means hanging the Tories. This means, like, shooting the royal family. And this means establishing a republic by any means necessary. And if you're wondering, like, I know, I know, like, for, like, my friends in the UK, you've tried so hard, like, in terms of parliamentary part politics for a long time to get in, into power, and it's not working. Like, look to the American example. This means establishing, like, institution like counter institutions outside of electoralism this means direct action this means mutual aid networks and this means understanding security culture at a very very deep level this is a time that like we need to be doing that in britain because if we are to sell if we are to like establish a republic one day in britain and get the fucking pig fuckers out of power then by any means necessary like, we must do what we can in order to overthrow the monarchy and kick the Starmerites and the Tories out by any fucking means necessary. And this won't give me consequences in the, in like the, UK, in the United States because Biden explicitly does not give a shit about, about England's, like, what, the, about their desires. He supports Ireland way fucking more. So up the provosts. And up with the republic, the future republic of Britain. By any means necessary, it is essential if we are to save lives in Britain. I think you just put us on like every anti-terror watch list in the UK. I'm fine with that. I'm I'm the only one who faces legal consequences here. I have like, I'm fine with that. That's. Oh. I I never wanted to visit the rainy fascism island anyway. Yeah. Fuck them. Well, this this is, yeah. By the way, you know, assuming they managed to carry through with this, you know, they could. The Tories are clever, evil bastards. And I will always consistently, like, if you put, like, a Tory and a Republic, an American Republican in the same room, the Tory would probably be, like, walking out with, like, holding the fucking IT and eyeballs of the American Republican because these guys are just fucking ruthlessly evil sons of bitches. Mm. Um, that, you know, if they manage to actually make this shit carry through, they're going for the full-on Singapore solution. Uh, fuck you, we're gonna leave the EU, we're gonna double down on being everybody's favorite money launderer and if you raise a peep we will, you know not so quietly rig the vote against you and turn the cops on you and make sure the opposition politically is just a bunch of squabbling party sects that won't ever challenge Tory power 
this is a model that's been done in other parts of the world here. Like, let's be frank. Like, the Tories are pretty openly signaling they want to do that, and there's nothing legally that could stop them. Like, if they really wanted to, they could even say, fuck it, we're suspending the Government of Scotland Act, and Holyrood is hereby ordered to disband immediately. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think that the only thing that's, like, staying their hand at this point in any capacity is the fear that things might pop off again and that this time they won't be able to stop it. And I think I think they should have reason to be scared. That's that's my honest that's my honest opinion. Like this is you're ending up in a situation where like this it, things are building towards existential war between the ruling class and the proletariat, and you gotta choose. I wish you all the best, but I mean, this is <laughs> like. Cure Starmer is not going to do shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, Cure Starmer is like. Cure Starmer is practically simping for this fucking bill. Like, let's let's be real. And honestly, if I was back in Scotland, I'd probably be standing the SNP very hard, purely from a. It gets us the hell away from the Tories' perspective. Like, yeah. Nothing about the you know left wing nationalism is at all a viable option, or that being a poor um, protector of the EU is better than where you're still subject to neoliberal bullshit is going to be any better than Westminster. I mean, honestly, it's you wouldn't be locked in the room with the fucking Tories anymore. It's better to be in the same position as Greece than it is to be locked in the prison house with the Tories. Like, that's literally the only valid argument at this point for regional nationalisms in the UK, but it is a really, really compelling argument. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I know we love to make fun of meme nationalisms here, but, like, frankly, I can't blame them. It's like, of course they want... uh, Of course, you, if you're in... If you're outside of, like, you know, the little sphere of, like, you know, upper-class Tory society, of course you would want to pull the ripcord. And, of course, you would want to glass the ruling class with whatever's to hand. It's... I mean, it's like, I can't... I just can't, you know? The whole Northern Independence Party means that my, like, persistent fanficking on this podcast about the Manchester People's Republic Red Guards storming uh, Westminster becomes more possible. (laughs) I, I still can't believe that, like, they went from this, like, basically this just, you know, popular account on Twitter to actually being able to establish what's, like, a viable political option, like, on Britain. Like, that is... 
That's how much Starmer fucked up. Yeah. I mean, it's like... But speaking of other fuck-ups, we've got how the Fed is still, which we hinted at earlier, bandaging finance. So, that was one thing that did get quite a bit of play on Twitter and a lot of other, like, lefty outlets that the Fed is going to continue with significant purchases of Treasury securities. Um, I think it was something like $80 million worth of the security purchases were authorized um, in the coming conference. Um, and there was a lot that was made of that, and, you know, that is a pretty significant chunk of change that's being used to prop up Wall Street, but this, you know, if you've been listening to this show for a while, this is, like, not new. Mm. This is, like, by the standards of, like, you know, 2020, like, $80 billion is, like, couch change. Yeah. And it's, like, yeah, I totally understand why they... why they're keeping this up as best they can, because it's, like, what are options are there? They don't want to give the free market fairy a panic attack. Yeah. I mean, the whole... Yeah. The whole Judge Wang thing enters again. This is the least bad position. I mean, everyone knows that, like, the Fed is taking the L on this, but it's better than the Fed being like, no, we're, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to let you all hang out to dry. Um, Wall Street can just drop dead. Like, there are worse ways to go. <laughs> Granted, the way I would go at this point, just because of how much the Fed's bought up and how much, like, quantitative easing is being used to cushion financial markets, is, you know, I'd fully stand Jerome Powell if tomorrow morning he held a press conference and announced, hi, Practically speaking, we actually own the financial sector, so effectively, immediately, Wall Street is. I mean, honestly, like if Jerome Powell like supported a coup, I would support it. That's how desperate things are right now. (laughs) And you know, I think really, honestly, that's the only sane way to deal with the mess that is Wall Street and the stock market is just to be like, "Fuck it, we're seizing these institutions, and we're going to wind down all the toxic debt, all the bad debt, and we're going to." find the shit that actually is a real asset and anything that isn't we're just so what, what, what you're saying is that like the only reasonable solution to this is literal bronze age palace economy economics aka a debt jubilee is that what you're saying here you're yeah. you're telling here that Pretty david graber has entered like, the chats yep the ghost of david graber has joined us and it is like this would be I'm just saying, like, you know, he could do that. He won't, of course. Because if he did that, then, you know, global markets would just heal over and die on the spot. Um, I mean, it would be worse than, like, a totally natural collapse, to be clear. Yeah, it'd be... It's the difference between we are about to make a water landing versus we are about to make a forced landing into the side of Fat Bear Mountain. Mm Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he won't do it, but he could. <laughs> like he probably could at this point. 
So... I think that gets us to some actually good shit in terms of energy. Mm. Well, you know, I, I do have to say, I, I really love that wind. Like, that wind is the fucking future. I love this segment so much because it's usually the one where we're most likely going to be talking about something that's actually good. Mm. Oh, wow. Like, consistently, this is like the one segment of this podcast that's like, well, I couldn't look forward to energy and climate this time at least because we're going to be talking about something cool like when power is way out in front on leading the energy transition in the United States. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, 120 gigawatts of nameplate capacity. That's pretty fucking impressive. That's total, um, like, they pretty much, uh, it's, so basically they installed, um, 10,593 megawatts of new wind capa- um, power capacity um, in the final quarter of 2020. Um, that's more than any other year except 2012. Um, and that was just in one quarter. Um, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That, that's called high. We're rolling out wind turbines like Model Ts. Yeah. There's um, about almost 35 gigawatts under construction or in advanced development um, as of the end of last year. Um, it's, it is pretty fucking huge. That's God. It's and this is like like it isn't something that totally solves all the problems around renewables, but the fact that wind is taking off at scale and just pumping out this rapidly is mm-hmm. it goes a long way towards solving the intermittency issue because you know you can legitimately say solar uh, energy runs into the problem of it's only good when the sun's shining, which you know means. You need batteries and a lot of storage stuff and all that to make it a much more viable option. And while there's solutions happening there, it still is extra work that has to happen. Whereas wind power, like, if you set up, like, an offshore wind farm or, you know, anything in, like, you know, West Texas, which is a major center of wind farm construction, by the way, um, or, like, you know, the Great Plains or something, like, places that predictably get a lot of wind, you're going to get around a lot of that intermittency-ish. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very much what... <laughs> I mean, a large part of the problem has been um, that you need a lot more name uh, nameplate capacity on hand with renewables than you do with... Um, baseload power systems and like you know i 
I am all about that nuclear, but it's like, have you seen what it takes to permit nuclear in this fucking country? Yeah, and honestly, like, and I say this because, like, my grandfather worked in the nuclear industry for a long time, like, studying uh, human reliability analysis, basically how accidents happen. Spoiler, it's always Mm -hmm. management. Like, yeah, I support nuclear, (laughs) but I don't support nuclear under capitalism. Like, because it's, you know, structurally guaranteed to ensure accidents happen. And you do not want nuclear accidents. Yeah, and it's, in the meantime, the fact that renewable capacity has ramped up this much is good because the other big problem that comes with nuclear is even under ideal circumstances it takes like eight to ten years to get a new plant online yeah and a big part of the problem facing american nuclear in particular is we have a lot of really old plants that badly need refurbishment or decommissioning so that you can churn out wind this quickly and wind is a very adaptable option yeah is it's going to help you know, close that gap. And it's going to also, like, it's reducing carbon output now, and the more we reduce carbon output now, the easier it will be to get to the hard nothing by 2030 that needs to happen if we're going to have recognizable agricultural civilization on this planet. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's very much... The nice thing about wind is that you can just type approve a turbine. You don't have to, like design the reactor for like a particular site you can just go hey is my design saying yes okay you can stamp it anywhere you want within reason um okay i I feel like um (laughs) we've talked a lot about this and that pretty much covers on what's happening with wind um because i don't want to send the week too much Um, (laughs) uh, i i do have a question though um doc miss silver do you smell like some ash in the air or like the potentiality of just a lot of ash being like thrown up into the jet stream and disrupting air travel. Oh, that, that, that's just Iceland having an mm-hmm. I, I don't. What's going on? It's periodically, you know, Iceland is a volcanic island, so it periodically explodes. And the last time it did that, like nine or ten years ago, it completely shut down air traffic Wait, in the North oh God. for about a week. Oh god, this just hit me just now, because I didn't kind of think through this, but, like, the air like the air travel industry is already struggling a lot, and, like, the circuit, the travel circuit between, like, across the Atlantic is essential. If this volcano erupts, like, it may or may not be a death blow for the, like, the um, airline industry really depends how Biden responds and how a lot of other parts of the world respond and, like, um, what the airline industry itself does. But, like, there is heavy, heavy potential if this crisis is not handled well for the airline industry to collapse. And that's not, like, that's a big thesis to make, but, like, the airline industry is in a really bad place right now, financially speaking. Well, part of it is they don't necessarily expect the eruption to be as bad as the 2010 one. Um, But it's kind of like, watch this space if um, North Atlantic travel routes, uh, air travel routes drop dead for the next while. This is why. Um, 
But yeah, just basically keep an eye out for it. And, you know, it's not like global supply chains aren't already seriously <laughs> stressed the fuck out. <laughs> Miss Silver, do you want to take the lead on this one? Um, I feel like a good way to introduce this would be talking about what's happening with the electronics industry right now. Yeah, okay. So, basically, um, <sighs> the electronics industry kind of has a problem right now. Um, everything is blown out, basically. Um, We've talked before about how TSMC has had oversubscription problems uh, for their 7 nanometer node. But as it turns out, this is more of a problem than you would expect because everything downstream is, is similarly fucked. Um, like... Uh, and part of um, part of this is uh, there's a really good article in the Wall Street Journal. We'll probably link it in the uh, in the show description. But um, the tildeer of it is the supply chain is a fucking mess. <laughs> I mean, it just kind of is. Um, Samsung is suffering from shortages. They run one of the two functioning seven nanometer nodes, and most of it is for their own internal consumption. They don't really sell slots on theirs very often. Um, but if uh, it's like their capacity is not keeping up. Uh, they, they're basically in the same boat as like everyone else. Um, and, like, they're, you know, turning around, you know, NAND, they're turning around DRAM as fast as they can, but it's still pretty ridiculous. And it's, yeah, it's majorly messed up. Um, on top of that, you got the container shortage, um... Unloading at, like, Los Angeles has been fucked for a while. Like, we, we've talked about a lot of this before. What's new, I think, is that we're starting to get a handle on um, how that's impacting, like, downstream uh, suppliers and such. Because it's, like, it's a little more helpful if you have, like, a specific case. This is why we... Uh, discussed the iPhone way back in, like, uh, the early days. Um, and, like, all the delays around the iPhone SE and all that. Um, which was a complete shit show. Um, right now, um, for DRAM and NAND... We have lead times at low minimum order quantity of 40 weeks. Um, LCD panels on that same basis are 60 weeks. That... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, 
this is supposed to be a frictionless supply yeah, chain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the supply chain is not supposed to have so kinks. That's neoliberal. Like, you know how, like, if you're on the freeway... That's saying not yeah. just, like... Like, you know how, like, if you're on, like, the freeway, and, like, the traffic's going really, really fast, but then everyone's stopping mm-hmm. really quickly. Like, imagine you're in Los Angeles, because this happens a lot. Like, traffic's going really, really fast, and then everyone, you know, stops really, really quickly. Like, this is a very common traffic pattern in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. Like, just imagine that you're in that, but your brakes have failed, and you're going full speed in the car in front of you. This is what's happening to our supply chains right now. Yeah. It's basically like, when they quote these, like, 60-week lead times, they're basically being like, okay, so for our big institutional customers, we've promised them, like, several dozen weeks of production, and we cannot get to you. You can buy some of our spot slots, but you are only asking for like a thousand LCD panels. And so we can't accommodate you in any time less than 60 goddamn weeks. Um, and this isn't just for like building consumer electronics, is it? This oh, is yeah, like no, this cars. is like... like all kinds weeks, of shit. Like, 60 weeks, that's a huge fucking number when you're talking about, like, the supply chain. Yeah, like, every... Like, every single smartphone, every single, um... Like, computer-like device, it needs some DRAM, it needs a system-on-chip... And it needs some flash storage, and all of that has lead times of 40 weeks or more for basically low minimum order quantities. It may be slightly better if you are an institutional that can buy like 100,000 parts at a time, a few million parts at a time. Um, but if you're like at the bottom, yeah, you're you're gonna be waiting for like a year and that's the for thing, your like, stuff to be fulfilled. Even if you're like institutional, an institution here, like a corporate, an electronics corporation who can spend a lot of money, like like I what was it, seven or eight nanometers? Like this is the only like for this particular like um like Taiwanese there company. Are, is it seven or eight yeah. nanometers? Um, seven. Seven, yeah. Like, they only, they have, like, the only major one that's, like, has spots available, um, in the world. Like, Samsung has one, too, but they don't have any spots at all. Um, like, even yeah, if you're that's, institutional... that's basically what I said. <laughs> big, you know, big numbers. Like, the issue here is that, like, if you're dealing with all these big electronic companies who have all this money for around, is they're competing, they're... They are basically they're all their money is competing with each other right now, which means that they're like they have a lot of costs in terms of like you know pumping out electronics products, which means in terms of like the electronics commodity market, there is a real potential that like we're gonna see a severe spike in electronics prices within like the the U.S. and frankly the entire world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like yeah, this is also- the. The thing with that is, is like, 
like lead times are not usually instant to begin with. It's usually something like, um, we can get you this large order in two weeks and four weeks and eight weeks. Um, lead times of a year are usually things like we have a new chip for you that we have just taped out today. We verified it works. Um, it's sitting in our test bench right now. Um, in a year, we will have X a number of chips. It's time for you to start ordering. Um, that's when you usually see year-long lead times. It's not... Holy shit. What, would what? you like to buy wait, a... Wait, well, you're telling me... What you're telling me here is that the literal product development cycle here it, for the electronics industry globally has been disrupted. They're going to have a year yes. where like <laughs> they can't do fucking shit. Holy fucking fuck. Oh yeah, this is this is a serious like and we've been covering the whole like, you know, onshoring thing that's been happening in like, you know, supply chains, trade papers and shit like that for a while now. And this, you know, this is a Thing we're starting to see that like even Japanese corporations are starting to go yeah we're going to reevaluate our supply chains um, as of the, as per the times of Japan um, Joe Biden's signed an executive order to that effect and everyone's like recognizing it but we're talking like close to 50 years of infrastructural inertia going on here it's going to take a hot minute to turn this like beached whale around yeah. And it's like, they, what, part of the situation is, is that um, for Logic, TSMC 7 nanometer is basically the go-to, and that means that, like, everyone is subscribed. Some things are less constrained by that, but it's like, we, we have a shortage that's basically where we're at right now. We are in a very severe shortage situation. Um, this is like worse than, God, it's worse than like 2011 when the Thailand plants flooded in 2010 and the hard drive market just basically shit itself for a year. Like, this is worse than that. And <laughs> our last word. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, who wants to take the lead on this? Um, Doc, Miss Silver, who wants to talk about the pro act and give our elevator pitch on, you know, why this should be the law of the land in the United States? Oh, yeah. Totally. So, this is like. This is one of the two things that we will admit is a good thing about Joe Biden, is that he is the most pro-labor president in American history since LBJ. Um, granted, that statement is more a judgment on everyone since LBJ than anything else, but, um, you know, that Biden has consistently been coming out in favor of right to organize and prioritizing that and quietly supporting things like the Bessemer, Alabama... Uh, Amazon workers organizing drive is, you know, we'll give him that. That's the one good thing he's doing, other than making the Tories shit their pants over Irishmen under the bed. 
Um, yeah. And, like, jump at Jerry Adams' ghost. But the... Like, the PRO Act is a laundry list of everything that Labor has been campaigning for as significant reforms since fucking taft heart. It would be the biggest change to American labor law probably since the New Deal. Mm. Like, I'm, and I'm not saying this because, partly because, I'm not just saying this because, you know, the state of labor law since Taft-Hartley has been utter dog shit. I'm also saying this because it is actually legitimately good. It would get rid of things like the independent contractor slash um, supervisor trick that employers can use under Taft-Hartley to say that, you know, you know, foremen and stuff are not represented in unions um, and reduce how many people can actually be in the union at a work site. It puts card check on there. It, like, greatly legally restricts what employers can get away with as far as on-the-job um like campaigning it's like basically everything. like for people who who like especially people who live in california um when th- there's a proposition that like uber and lyft and other like major gig economy corporations uh like are pushing forward to basically fuck over gig workers in california if the pro act passes that proposition that passed in california def- that like f- has fucked over gig workers and like made it like has made it more difficult for them to organize it like the pro act would say fuck no like fuck no that proposition like it would help labor in california so fucking much oh it help labor everywhere this would be like i'm actually genuinely saying in a this is a good bill sense that this is the most sweeping act of labor reform since 1935. Mm-hmm. Like, this is... would legitimately be a huge shot in the arm for the labor movement. Like, it would dramatically change the game in the United States. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this has been... Uh, it's been, like, the biggest problem we've had um, basically since I became a leftist. So, like, you know, 2002. I mean, it's... We've been, sh- you know, we've been chasing after this since like the Bush era, um, Long longer. Really. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is- like this is the wish bill for the labor movement. Like as it's as for like decades. Like the labor movement has been wanting this for a long oh, yeah. ass time. Like this is not just like this is like beyond the realm of like electoral politics. So that like a lot of that has been fucking bullshit. But if the pro act passes. We have a fucking chance. Like it is yeah. essential. Yeah. This is this is an e- essential task for the American left for the pro act to pass on not just on electoral level but on the revolutionary level. If we want to win, the pro act needs to pass. Yeah, I mean it's like we we are already so fucking behind at this point. We we need a win here. And this is... Honestly, this is the biggest one we're gonna get. So, let's, let's fucking go for it. And on top of that, it looks like 
Joe Biden has previously been like, oh no, we need to respect the filibuster there, Billy. What are you talking about? Um, actually seems to be willing to do a thing about the filibuster mm. to get the PRO Act through. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, anything that does that is definitely a positive towards shit actually happening that makes can people we, feel better and help actually can, helps Can we people. give the chop shop um, pitch on how we think the filibuster, I mean, honestly, I mean, ultimately it should be abolished, but, like, what the um, revolutionary reform well, is here for the filibuster? The, the standing, well, the standing filibuster? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, leaving aside that ultimately, you know, flush down the toilet to begin with, um, <laughs> full stop. But leaving that aside, if we can't do that, then, you know, one of the next best things, short of abolishing the filibuster, which, you know, unfortunately we have shitheads like Joe Manchin and girl boss Kirsten Sinema, who probably is doing some stupid little dance over this in front of Chuck Schumer's face or something, um, is, you know, short of actually abolishing the filibuster, which they both have made noises about, um, is bringing back the talking filibuster, which is, you know, back to how filibusters worked up until the 1970s, which was if you wanted to actually hold up the business of the Senate, you had to stand and talk. Yeah. And talk. And talk. And you could, like, relinquish the floor to another member of your party or someone who supports your filibuster, but you have to actually physically stand there. Like, you can't go to the bathroom, you can't stop to refill your water bottle. You just have to stand there and doesn't fucking matter if you're like reading the bible from genesis 1 1 on you have to actually do that yeah which means sooner or later (laughs) the members of the senate being who they are the (laughs) filibuster will end yeah and it's like the republicans don't have enough young dead-eyed freaks to keep up that sort of activity i mean i could definitely see josh hawley going the distance but like mcconnell would piss himself like yeah. two hours in. and like let's be real here's the thing there oh, yeah. is a physical limitation here of why the standing filibuster would fuck over the reactionaries and the senate because these are like gerontocratic like um aristocrats who have weak fucking knees Physically, they can't they can't stand for that long. If they if they stand for that long, if they haven't had knee surgery yet, they would need knee surgery. So what I'm saying <laughs> is that we should have a standing filibuster. These fuckers deserve knee surgery. Yeah, and I'd I totally mean, want I would... to see Mitch McConnell go on record for twelve hours straight on why he thinks the four should go fuck themselves. I would love that. Let's just do it. (laughs) Roll the tape. Let's go. Have C-SPAN in the room for while Mitch McConnell goes on for 12 hours about why the poor can go die in a fire. And like the sound clips? That is catnip. That's catnip for journalists. So honestly, I would fucking love that. Senator Feinstein has to stand up and justify why we're giving more money to the dog killers. 
she has to stand there for 24 hours not taking a break going uh, well this is this is why we need to give more money to the fbi uh, we, we need to uh, we need to give our uh, support our troops and support our cia and uh, you know f- fuck you fuck you fuck you <laughs> honestly like either way this ca- fucking catnip i want this i want to hear uh, feinstein say that because we can play that over and over again i fucking dare you <laughs> Say it. <laughs> Say it on C-SPAN. I'm not expecting that bringing back the standing filibuster will somehow like topple the American Empire all by itself or something, since you know the Empire is already doing a pretty damn good job of that on its own. But at least we'll get some really fucking great entertainment out of the political class on our way down. <laughs> at least we'll get some really fucking sweet let them eat cake shit oh yeah and it's like that's i mean that's partly why i'm excited for it it's like it's not gonna be just like republicans that are gonna have to you know stand there and hold up everything it's gonna be conservative democrats justifying why you know, actually, we can't have nice things, and fuck you. They're gonna have to go up there and, you know, say for the record that I hate you, and you voted for me, you stupid pig, so this is what you deserve. You have to listen to me read the Bible for 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not going to be any, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington shit going down, but mm-hmm. I don't know, Honestly. like, Bernie might pull one out amazingly and epically. I could see him, like, Honestly, proceeding like, to fucking, like, dunk on the entire Senate by going, yes, I'm going to do a fucking one-man, 26-hour filibuster. If the, if the standing because filibuster... Because you guys won't vote on the minimum wage. If Fuck the standing you. filibuster became a thing, I, unironically, would... What would want to become like a senator only because there is some like philosophy texts that are fucking painful to read, let alone hear. And I would fucking love to, you know, hear these fucking derogatoric, like motherfucker aristocrats have to fucking hear. Um, oh god, who is um? Uh, I'm trying to think. Hegel. Literally, fucking Hegel for hours and hours and hours. It would be fucking perfect. I would be so oh, fucking yeah. happy. So yeah, I guess our last word this time is, you know, if your senator likes the idea of the talking filibuster, drop him a line. And, you know, this is probably going to be the one reformist thing we ever ask our listeners to do. So please actually try and do it. Yeah. Do it for the comedy value. Everything sucks. But Do it if for we the bring memes. this back. Yeah, if we bring this back in the era of the meme, it'll be fucking hilarious to watch all these fucking gerontocrats have to justify their bullshit. <laughs> Just think of the future PhD students who will now get to use those memes as a dissertation topic. Do you really want to let them down? Yeah. Do it for the memes. Yeah, don't let the future Chad and Thad academics down. 
do it for the mm-hmm. fucking memes. This is meme lord communism. <laughs> so, um... You read this yeah. shit so you don't have to? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Good luck, everybody. Bye, everyone. This is HQ and Miss Silver and Doc with the eight legs that he refuses to show me signing off. <laughs>